Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. And welcome to the show. I am your host, online editor for The Spectator, Alexandra Marshall. And tonight we are going to ask a question that defines our modern age. What is science? Is science as simple as its dictionary definition insists? The observation, identification, description, experimental investigation and theoretical explanation of natural phenomena? Could such a cold assessment summarise one of the greatest endeavours of humankind? A revelation that we alone as a species on this planet have explored? Or is the relationship between science and humanity more complicated? How many times have we heard science compared to the apple of sin, the moral dilemma between what we want to know, what we can know and what we should know? From its earliest beginnings, science has been in competition with religion. The twin human interests both lay claim to knowledge of the divine and to the unravelling of universal secrets. The religions of the world at one time or another have sought to manipulate, eradicate or own science and its discoveries, incorporating them into the narrative of power. Politicians too, be they kings, emperors, presidents, princes or dictators, all have kept a tight hold on the neck of science. Somewhere along the historical path, as religion faded from the West, crushed under ambivalence, a lack of mystery and aggressive political movements of the uh, ism kind, being communism, socialism, Marxism, globism, wokeism, science has become a breed of religion itself, a cult, a delusion, a belief and even a dogma. Knowledge is power and our political leaders have worked out that not only can they manipulate science with public money in the form of grants and subsidies, that they can use science to stir a religious terror within the minds of citizens, causing a once liberal society to view scientists as priests, political parties as churches and politicians as gods. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Yes, repent your climate sins with tax and we will save you from the boiling earth. Elect us and we will keep you safe. When people invoke the apocalypse, it becomes possible to justify any trespass on morality, any violation of dignity, and to destroy every shred of humanity. This will be one of the topics for today. Is modern science a corporation, a cult, or a memory we are on the verge of losing? To the question of political regimes misusing science for their own ends, the alarmists, the peddlers of propaganda, the fear-mongering prime ministers and presidents who claim divine truth over the secrets of this planet, I leave you with the world's one, one of the world's greatest speakers on this topic, the late, great Christopher Hitchens in his final speech. 
We have the same job we always had, to say as, as thinking people and as humans that there are no final solutions. There is no absolute truth. There is no supreme leader. There is no totalitarian solution that says that if you will just give up your freedom of inquiry, if you will just give up, if you will simply abandon your critical faculties, a world of idiotic bliss can be yours. But we have to begin by repudiating all such claims. Grand rabbis, chief ayatollahs, infallible popes, the peddlers of surrogate and mutant quasi political religion and worship, the dear leader, the great leader. We have no need of any of this. And looking at them and their record and the pathos of their supporters, I realize that it is they who are the grand imposters. And my own imposture this evening was marred by comparison. Thank you very much. Tonight, I'll be interviewing two guests. The, author, the second is an author, electrical engineer, and energy system realist, Ben Beatty, on the subject of renewable energy and its role in the climate agenda. But first, I am joined by UK conservative commentator, Lilani Dowding, on science's lost morality in pursuit of our immortality. Lilani, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you so much for having me and we've both got the pink memo. <laughs> we've, we've coordinated our outfits for this segment. Look, tonight we are exploring the limitations and the ethics of science. One of those fields where this is of the utmost importance and urgency is that of animal testing. Now, in other words, what level of harm and suffering are we prepared to inflict on other living things to produce cures and treatments for ourselves? Now, before we get in the, into the specifics of the protests that have been going on in the UK for, you know, years. Where do you sit on this question? Are you against any and all animal testing? Or if, for instance, I promised you that every crippled child would walk again if I torture these dozen rats, would that be an acceptable moral trade-off? See, unfortunately, that's not realistic. You know, you, you, you couldn't save all crippled children by torturing a dozen rats. And rats are so different than humans. Um, just look at what happened with the thalidomide trials. Um, and also, um, it's not just rats, it's animals like dogs. And dogs, as we know, are allergic to things like chocolate and grapes, things that humans can, like, you know, fill themselves with. So animals are so different, but unfortunately, it's not just medicine that they're still testing on animals. Um, things like industrial chemicals, household chemicals, um, there's, there, there are actually puppy farms in the UK that are breeding beagles um, for household and industrial toxicology tests, meaning they'll force dogs to inhale you know, the chemicals, they'll have them rubbed on their skin, they'll have the chemicals put in their eyes. And you know, why? Because TikTok has a craze of kids eating washing pods. So now we have to see what, you know, these chemicals do to the animals. And this is the problem. Um, and luckily, Camp Beagle, which is um, 
they're a protest group in the UK. They've actually been outside one of the puppy farms for about two years, camped outside there, um, raising a lot of awareness. And they've managed to put a petition together um, to petition the UK government on the 19th of February to talk about these toxicology tests that are still going on in the UK on animals and, you know, breeding the dogs as well. Well, I think a lot of people have awareness of animal testing and makeup. You and I both love makeup. And there was yeah. a whole thing, I think it was the late 90s, where there was this not tested on animals became a mm -hmm. signal for a lot of companies. They would use that as a promotional brand. But when it comes to medicines, I think a lot of people imagine that the testing is done on mice and rats. And they seem to be unaware that the testing for products is actually done on a range of animals, including ferrets, including dogs, including cats. And that is sort of not hidden from public view, but there's not a lot of interest from the public because they don't know about it. Mm -hmm. Now, for reference in this interview, I'm flexible on the topic, but I am also extremely concerned about the levels of suffering that we in, it would give to animals for our human benefits. So in the question I posed at the beginning, the reason I posed it like that is because that's how it's often presented to the public for the greater yeah. good. Now, Lalani, you have been protesting against the use of, in particular, beagles. Now, of course, there are strict regulations yeah. and pieces of legislation that control animal testing, and there's no suggestion here that the facility or others violate any of these rules. Indeed, scrutiny, it has been confirmed that everything is above board. What we are talking about is public awareness and whether or not we agree with the limitations and regulations that are currently in place and if they should be changed. So, Lalani, here's a video of you from 2021. So behind here, there can be up to 2,000 dogs at any one time um, being bred. So multiply out the amount of litters that they can have every year. Um, Camp Beagle are camped alongside here. Um, please, please follow them. They're trying to raise awareness. They have outreaches going on in different cities at different times. So if you're in the area or the outreach area, please consider joining them to help just raise awareness to show that animals, dogs particularly, are being still used in experiments and they're being bred right here. So, Lani, how did you come across this and are we getting anywhere? Has there been any change in perception since this has been going on? You know, I think there's been a slight raise in awareness, but a lot of people... Um, still don't know i just i reposted that video from two years ago just maybe a couple of weeks ago when i found out that camp beagle were going to have this um or or they'd been able to bring this um topic into debate in the house of parliament and when i posted it people were very shocked that it still goes on um that we're still breeding these dogs in the uk as you said it's legal but does legal always make things moral? Is, is it still acceptable? Um, and a lot of people were disgusted to see that it's not just, you know, medicines. It's also, you know, these, these chemicals that are used around the household, used in maybe in, in industrial workplaces um, that are still being tested on animals. And I think that that's what upset a lot of people. Unfortunately, with a lot of these parliamentary debates, there's a lot of MPs that probably won't even bother showing up. Um, and, you know, people have written to their MPs to remind them that this is going on. And the MPs will write back and say, you know, specifically talk about the use of animals, um, mice, rats for testing medicines. Um, and pharmaceutical products. But again, this isn't just what's going on. It is other kinds of chemicals. And the, the 
you know, who goes into work and wakes up for their day knowing that they're going to force um, beagles to inhale these toxic fumes or inject them with them or rub corrosive substances onto their bodies um, or, you know, do the ingestion test. So, you know, as you said, you know, it might not be illegal, but I think a lot of people are really upset that this is actually happening from a moral standard. And, you know, things need to change. Laws need to change. It's 2023. There's there's computer modeling. There's like fake tissue. If you, if you can grow fake tissue to uh, eat like Bill Gates wants, why, why aren't you producing fake tissue to test on? You know, That's this actually, is, if we're growing this, burgers, this and, if we're growing and printing burgers in labs, why are we still testing on animals would be one of the questions. But look, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a moment. We're back with Alani Dowding talking about animal rights and the limitations of animal testing. Now, according to the group that Alani has been following, 2,000 beagles are bred in one UK facility and sold at 16 weeks to drug companies and chemical companies for testing. To repeat, this practice is legal and regulated, but the public may not be aware of what this industry entails, and perhaps they should be given the opportunity to decide if the laws need to be changed. Now, they are not alone, Lalani. 4,000 beagles were rescued from a US facility in Virginia, according to the New York Times in 2022, after they were found to be mistreated and living in terrible conditions. Now, the US Department of Agriculture claimed that in 2019 alone, 58,500 dogs were used for testing in America, which is a long way short of the 100 million mice that are also used. Do you think this is in line with what the public expectation is of animal testing? Because I was shocked by the figures of particularly dogs that are being used. You know, I, I think the public would feel the same if they knew those numbers. I actually didn't know the numbers for America. I'm really embarrassed to say. Um, and that, to me, is shocking. I think it's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, we're talking about... <laughs> you know, man's best friend, right? You know, so many people know how lovely um, these these dogs are. Beagles are the most, and that's why they're used as well, because they are very gentle, very sweet, very trainable dogs. Um, and this is why it's, it's you know, it's so upsetting. I just feel like if, the, if it was out there and the public understood and knew the extent to which it's happening, I think there would be so much more outrage. But the problem is, it is kept very quiet. And I think people think, oh, gosh, you know, it must be regulated so well, it can't, you know, it can't be torture. But actually, you know, it really is. It it really is that, that they're... Well, one, one, of the reason, one of the reasons I, I was talking about this is I followed a link to one of your articles that you had there, and they use beagles because they can be trained to offer their little paws up even when they're quite ill and testing, and that just preys on the good behaviour of our little puppy dogs. But I'm going to show you mm -hmm. a quick I'm going to show you a quick cli uh, clip from Camp Beagle and a warning: this may be distressing for some viewers.
We cut out the worst parts of those videos because they're extremely distressing to watch. Now, we keep being told by politicians and scientists that animal testing is only done when absolutely necessary, uh, necessary, but activists that you were talking to have disputed this. One was quoted as saying, most animal studies do not yield direct benefits. And then they go on to say that, you know, in many laws of Western countries, drugs have to clear clinical trials of animals before moving to humans. And given how many drugs are in production, that's a lot of animal testing, Lalani. Do you think we uh, need to have a look at what these activists are saying and maybe we've become desensitised to this? You know, I think we have, and I think you hear animal activists and you get kind of this negative con connotation because of a lot of the activism that went on through the 90s and the 2000s and, you know, even the, as far back as the 80s. And, and I think you actually do have to listen to what they're saying um, because... When you hear about it, it's it's pretty horrifying. And as you saw from, um, you know, what you showed in that clip, what's necessarily legal standard of care is not what you or I would expect our animals to be treated like. So, you know, how is a beagle in the lab any different than one of our puppy dogs that we bring home? You know, they, they might say it's they're taken care of and they're looked at and they get checked by vets, but they're not getting the love, they're not getting the grooming, they're not getting the walks, they're stuck in these cages day in, day out. Um, and as you said, they're just really preying on the good nature of those dogs um, to be able to go in every day and put them through hell. Well, if you treated your horses that way, you would have your horses taken off you. So there's definitely a double standard mm -hmm. there. Now, there was a bill before the UK Parliament a few years ago about this and a petition that attracted 102,000 signatures. So there was some interest, but not really enough. And the result was there was no change. To quote the Home Office in 2022, the use of animals in science supports the development of new medicines and the safety of our environment for the benefit of humans and animals and is only permitted when there were no alternatives, end quote. Have you seen any change in the UK politicians or do you have a feeling that there's going to be no change in this issue? As I said, I just don't even think politicians are going to turn up on the 19th of February when this gets re-debated again. Um, Camp Beagle did another petition asking for a debate. The debate's happening. Um, people have written to their MPs, begging them, saying, please, can you go to this? And again, the responses have always said, um, you know, this is how I feel about medical, you know, the testing of animals for medicine. Um, and they're only used when there are no alternatives. Well, there are alternatives. And again, it's not just medicines, it's household and industrial chemicals that are also being tested well, let's also um, talk about on the dog. So it's like the MPs themselves don't even know what's actually going on. Well, one of the biggest industries growing for animal testing is that of vaccine testing on animals. And that has rapidly mm -hmm. expanded in the era of COVID. I mean, here's a short clip from one of those places that is actually breeding these animals for testing. With its rapid spread, it has become a high priority among researchers to develop a coronavirus vaccine, which will not be possible without animal research. Since there is no treatment for the virus, a vaccine could save thousands of lives. Experts have selected a few animal models that could be a great help toward the discovery of a coronavirus vaccine or treatment. First are mice, specifically genetically engineered mice with a human receptor that allows the mice to get infected with the virus as humans do. 
Now, in case you missed that, Lalani, in the video was the casual mention of mice that are being genetically altered. They call them humanized mice. They are bred with functioning human genes, cells, tissues, and organs, depending on which lab it is, in aid of creating human-style immune responses for things like the COVID vaccine. Now, in other words, these are designer human hybrid mice, which are created essentially for torture and testing. Is this sort of going mm -hmm. a step too far, Lalani? As far as talking about whether we're playing God with science, would you consider that to be even beyond animal testing? I think so. When you start genetically messing around with animals like that, not, not you know, splicing genes from humans in or, or whatever they do to get this, um, this hybrid mouse, that to me is way too far. You know, it's not like selective breeding when you start genetically modifying animals that happens, you know, that can happen naturally or when you put two different mice together. This is, this is almost playing God. And this is to me too far. But look, they're talking about the COVID vaccine, which is very interesting and talking about testing it on mice. We've seen it tested on people. We've seen the effects of it. And they don't even want to listen to that. They want to completely gaslight people that have had problems with the vaccine. So if they're going to gaslight, you know, what's happened to humans and the human results of this human experiment we've had for the last few years, then what are they going to do with animals? You know, it's 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 just hard for me because I just don't see that we're going to get anything good from carrying on testing on animals the way that we're doing and, and messing around with them and, you know, creating viruses in labs to put into animals to find a vaccine before that, that virus has ever escaped the lab. All of these things are actually really dangerous territory. And I think, you know, separate from what's going on in the UK with the breeding of the beagles and the parliamentary debate, we need to also look at that, about creating these viruses and putting them into animals before they've even come out, um, you know, gain of function research. And I think that's something that really has to be looked at too. Well, you're, you're actually in agreement with some leading scientists who, there was a story that came out in January, which we published, about the Chinese scientists in Wuhan, now, a different Wuhan lab, but same part of the world. And they had used these humanized mice and created by accident a COVID ver a version of COVID with a 100% kill rate. And they called it the zombie virus because it turned their eyes white and they went kind of crazy before they eventually died. Now, one professor called that experiment a terrible study that was scientifically totally pointless and not to mention dangerous. Now, in China, since at least 2010, they've also been doing things like using robot farms to clone pigs for food in an automated AI system. Now, this is the same country that sent a scientist to jail for illegally gene-splicing human DNA, resulting in the birth of genetically altered little girls. Now, Gosh only knows what else is going on behind closed doors. In your view, do we need a proper investigation, dare we say globally, into the topic of what is going on in these labs in response to animal testing and genetic testing? Absolutely, 100% all over the world. I mean, I don't know if you read about the secret lab that was found in California that no one had any idea about that had come from some Chinese sponsored money. Um, you know, we only hear probably a tiny bit on the surface of what's going on. We have no idea as the public what is going on in these labs, the labs that are well known, the university labs, let alone secret, you know, or military labs that are that are, that are all around the world. So I think 
we're we're in a really really dangerous territory the way we're splicing genes around mixing different creatures um and i definitely think there needs to be some proper investigation into it well when it comes to gain of function research i was horrified to discover that it's mostly based upon self-reporting in a system of trust which is a little bit alarming now final <laughs> final question here lalani james watson the co-discoverer of the structure of dna wrote in the guardian quote if scientists don't play God, who else is going to?" End quote. Now, Lilani, are we in danger of losing our humanity as we take on this godlike persona in the medical industry? Because after all, believing you have control over life and death is surely the most powerful drug of all. Absolutely. I, I Honestly, I just think the God complex that a lot of these scientists have that makes them go to work every day, create viruses, put vi or bacteria, put these into animals, splice genes um, from animals, humans, um, you know, creating babies outside the womb, in fake wombs, all of this, I think, all of this is playing God. And again, I just think it's very, very dangerous territory as to where it's going to take us. And Lalani, if people want to catch up with your activism as far as, you know, finding out what's going on with this Beagle Farm and trying to petition their politicians to stop it, where can they go? Can they follow you, for instance? They can follow me. I, I, I kind of scratch the surface of it just a little bit, but for more information and a lot of the deep stuff, if you go to Camp Beagle um, and the Camp Beagle website, they you just have to put it in there and uh, it will come up and, and you'll see everything from, you know, talking about the different testing that goes on, um, the Beagle breeding facilities, you'll see videos and actual evidence of the you know puppies being taken away, all of that. Cat Beagle keep, will keep you up to date on petitions that are happening um, and their live outreaches. So definitely go to Camp Beagle because they're doing a really wonderful job of of raising awareness. Well, thank you, Lalani. I know you're an animal lover and do everything you can to make the lives of animals better. And look, for the Australian viewers here, we have similar problems in this country. I encourage you to follow some of those activist groups, you know, conservatives might be less likely to go to. They do have a point when it comes to animal testing. So thank you, Lalani, for joining us here today. Thanks, Alexandra. Our second guest tonight is electrical engineer, energy system realist and spectator writer Ben Beattie. Ben, welcome to the show. G'day, Alexandra. Who would have thought that energy would become such an intensely political topic? Today, energy is being increasingly linked to what sort of government you want to be ruled over, a monstrous bureaucracy of net zero tyrants or a truly free market that values the scientific merit of energy types. Now, Ben, you've been writing about energy systems for many years. Are Australians, sorry, are Australians politicians giving taxpayers the best value for money and the highest degree of technical expertise? Or is something else going on with our energy grids? Yeah, I think we're I think we're falling into the latter category, Alexandra. So uh, I describe it if the if the so-called energy transition was going well, then we wouldn't be talking about it. So an engineer like me uh, discussing possibly the most driest, boring subject matter on earth, to be honest, uh, you'd, I'd be the last person on your show, uh, and you wouldn't be talking to me. But it's it's not going well. Clearly, um, electricity is beyond important. It was important in the 50s, but now it's basically the end of our society if we don't have it for any extended periods. Think about your clean water and sewage systems, refrigeration for food and medicine. Uh, it's that important. So 
I like to I like to talk to people when I'm trying to impress upon them that we're in a, a dire situation. It's that we've evolved, our society has evolved due to the availability of cheap and ubiquitous electricity. Uh, without it, we'd be living in some kind of apocalypse that be <laughs> belongs on Netflix. So I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and um, tell you that we're on the brink of losing everything. It's it's not that way. It's just a death of a thousand cuts and everything's going to be um, cost more. So I think it, it bothers me uh, that something this important has become a plaything of our political leaders and their activists. Well, uh, you and me would probably be okay if we had no power for a week. I mean, I'm a farm girl. I know how to get the kerosene lamps out. You know, I can use the uh, the well and everything. It's all fine. But I don't think Gen Z would be pretty happy if their iPhones and their apps went dark for a while. That No TikTok would be the end of civilization. But, I mean, we used to talk about energy only when we had giant storms come through and there'd be blackouts. But now we're quite seriously talking about there being power sharing and long uh, blackouts going on in cities and I even saw that they're worried they can't keep our steel mills operational. Is there a genuine problem on the horizon if something doesn't change for our energy system? Yeah, definitely. And the first place is going to show up, to be honest, is in New South Wales. So everyone's heard about the forthcoming closure of Araring power station. Uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a big one. Uh, and what I'd, what I'd suggest is that the, uh, the state minister, Mr Minns, is going to be struggling to find a way to keep that open. I think um, a couple of years ago, I was listening to a podcast with Frank Calabria when he was announcing uh, the closure of Origin's largest coal-fired power station, uh, only coal-fired power station, and he said that uh, he'd be replacing it with gas for days and weeks is a literal quote. So if we have to rely on gas to replace baseload coal, then life is going to get very, very expensive for Australians. Oh, but we're not allowed to have gas for cooking in our kitchens, though. Just gas for the power stations and that's it. Now, this goes beyond Australia, doesn't it? We've got, like, Australia's energy decisions are effectively decreed by the United Nations, regulated by the European Union and orchestrated by the World Economic Forum. Our ministers have turned into these sort of little messengers for the global energy revolution. Now, we're being told that the figure for transitioning to this renewable utopia by 2050 is somewhere in the region of 120 trillion dollars for the world. Now, you're an engineer. Would that be the final figure or would we be stuck replacing these energy grids every 20-odd years? Well, Alexandria, you've nailed it. So this is a this is a cost to get there. It's not a cost to operate it and maintain it and replace these things for forever and ever. So th these days, the renewable energy industry is one hell of a big business. Worse, it's pushed by the those ultranational organisations you mentioned. Uh, BlackRock, uh, globalist organizations like the WHO and the WEF and the UN. And these are the these are the same interests that gave us such good advice during COVID. They all want open borders, higher taxes, fewer laws and less ownership. Do we do we need to appease these people or should we just do our own thing? Well, uh, this is what uh, first alerted me to your plight. This week, you were you got kicked off the Smart Energy Council's webinar, which was featuring Chris Bowen. Now, I want to know, what did you do to hurt Bowen's feelings so badly you got kicked off? <laughs> uh, to be fair to the Smart Energy Council, it was towards the end and Mr. Bowen wasn't there anymore. And apparently what he said was uh, was not that great to start with. It was a bit of a, a bit of a love in, as you can imagine. Uh, but no, in these in these webinars, there's quite often an open chat uh, and good on the Smart Energy Council for letting anybody turn up. But uh, they didn't they didn't want to let me see the end of the show. So uh, I did ask a few questions in the in the uh, in the chat. I just I just came across 
to them and said, look, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that the uh, renewables can lower the prices. Can anyone help me and explain it? Uh, and a couple of questions like that was enough to get me booted. I think the problem was you asked for details on costings and nobody likes to hear the price tag of some of these things. Now, in an article in August last year called Gen Cost and the Renewables Info Wars, you wrote, and I quote, energy policy is one of the great dilemmas facing Australian politics and the cold war between renewables and voters is escalating rapidly, end quote. Now, you go on to say later on, facts and logic are existential threats that must be obliterated, else the age of renewables will be regulated to a footnote in history, end quote. Now, early in the show, I was talking about science becoming a sort of religion, or at the very least, a tool of the political regime to exert fear and control. As an electrical engineer, how do you see the public's response to net zero propaganda and apocalyptic rhetoric? Are you dismayed to see people adopting bad systems as a sort of saviour complex and throwing money at corporations to alleviate their sin of breathing out carbon dioxide? Yeah, somewhat. It is it is disappointing and and frustrating. But I do I do feel a little bit of sympathy for the the people that the layperson who don't have the kind of insights that that someone like myself uh, does have based on some training experience that I that I have in my job. Um, what I do, what does disappoint me a bit more, I think, is that the the bureaucracies I see is almost enablers. So the politicians are. Uh, I can forgive them for making bad decisions, uh, but I can't forgive the bureaucracies who are employ who employ experts, experts, people who know the uh, ins and outs of the market. You know far more than I do. There's people at all these energy bureaucracies, and we're talking about AEMO, the operator, AEMC, the market commissioner, and the AER, the regulator. And as well, there was an energy security board and all the rest of it. And then you've got all the state advisors who feed energy into the ministers. And Mr. Bowen's got access to every CEO in the country. He's got access to um, every every lobby group and organisation. He, he can get the facts. Uh, so it, I'd suggest that if, he, if it's going this badly, then either he's ignoring good advice or he's getting bad advice. And I don't see how either of those uh, can help the cause, I don't think it's working very well. Well, we keep hearing things like trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. Now, I'm sure these are the mutterings of Labor ministers as they watch their flock of net zero sheep start to panic. Now, climate change and energy minister Chris Bowen, by the way, two portfolios that absolutely should not be joined together because they're in competition with each other. He has a lot of problems right now. It turns out that people really don't like wind farms and solar farms on their doorstep, and they're not too keen on having their pro properties sliced in half by these power lines either. Now, Europe, which is arguably 15 years ahead of us, you know, in adopting renewable energy, they've made a pretty big shift toward nuclear energy instead. Now, suddenly nuclear is the virtuous saviour of the climate. How is Chris Bowen going to square this? Because Australian Green groups are not like their European counterparts. They're still seeing the same slogans as the 1970s. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, contradiction, isn't it? The 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 like you said the almost unscientific uh, belief that we need to reduce emissions at any cost and then we have we have nuclear banned so I'd, I'd suggest to people who are talking about nuclear and this this the same argument is raised every single day in all the social media and all the rest of it and everyone knows it but um 
we just get told that nuclear is a joke by by our energy minister who is meant to be able to access the best information we can get. So now Mr. Bowen has been spruiking the benefits of wind and solar, batteries and transmission lines, as you know, all these things that take over the environment. Um, they spread like a, a, a cancer, to be honest. Along with every other state minister, there's plenty of big business lobby groups and activists involved. So uh, it's difficult to see how such a large variety of people can ignore the evidence, the facts that we live through every day, where we're getting our... Um, our electricity prices going up ever since the government started forcing renewables into the system. The costs have been going up and following it. And you mentioned Europe. Uh, I would point out that Germany is appears to be deindustrializing. There's there doesn't seem to be any turnaround at the moment. They need a political change. Uh, you look at California, look you look at anywhere they've got it, where we're losing and we're we're costing our economy dearly. Yes, well, Bowen keeps going on saying things like, oh, we can't possibly build a nuclear power plant. That's it's completely impossible for Australia to do. There's more than 100 nuclear power plants in the Pacific region alone, and there's more than 100 being built. It's not like people aren't building nuclear power plants. You can buy them off the shelf. Now, is nuclear energy an existential threat to Bowen's renewable energy dream? That's a good question. Um, I think it probably is, but... It's it's not a it's not a silver bullet in that sense. So, for say for example, Peter Dutton and his and his crew get in at the next election, uh, and they have a mandate to repeal the ban. Well, that's that's basically one of the many pieces of the puzzle that needs to happen. Uh, I would argue that there's going to have to be a lot of government intervention to make nuclear happen. It's not going to happen on its own, and. The big problem for that is that the uh, the policy interventions to date with the, the rooftop solar in particular is eroded the market share for baseload generators so much that no one really wants to build a baseload generator unless they can get a guaranteed contract, which is basically how the, how the wind and solar get in the system as well. So it's, it's going to be a very long and tough road and they're going to have to bring out some courage to, to make it happen. Well, we're just going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back. We're back here with Ben Beattie to talk about the energy markets and what's going on. Now, we've seen the president of Argentina, Javier Malay, get up and lecture the West about free markets. Now, energy in Australia pretends to be a market system. Craig Kelly was at a reckless renewables rally in Canberra last week and he had this to say. Have a listen. I've been arguing the case against these wind turbines for so we were here 12 years ago. 12 years ago on that stage, almost almost identical rally against the wind turbines that were going up on farmland. Right? The thing is, they're subsidised. That's the problem. And our electricity market doesn't price the intermittency properly. So you're getting these things that are built that are uneconomic, right? They're environmentally damaging, and the excuse we get is, oh, they're going to help, they're going to help improve the weather and make better weather. But this is the most craziest nonsense you've ever heard. Now, I've seen you write a great deal about the market regulation and subversion in the energy sector. Has the government ruined the energy market in Australia by intervening to fix it? And if so, how do we get ourselves out of this enormous mess before the lights go out? Alexander, that's that's probably one of the most important questions that that should be raised. Uh, one of the problems is that people don't realise how bad it has become, which is what I alluded to at the at the top of this section. Uh, when we talk about the the market, uh, you've got to realise that it was a relatively free market with some government intervention 
in the early 2000s. Now it's it's become completely bastardized. You've got the RET generators, the renewable energy target, that's forced the existing round of, I call them the legacy wind and solar systems into the grid. But pretty soon we're going to see another another round of generators. I call them the CIS generators, the capacity investment scheme generators. So the, the bastardization continues, but what you're going to see, I believe, is the RET generators are going to see their their lunch eaten by the capacity investment scheme generators. Now, the the problem with all these schemes is that they're focused on an arbitrary target of, of a percentage. You've heard it, 82% renewables and 43% emissions reduction. Uh, none of that, none of that uh, reflects any of the compromises that it puts into the market, the economics, and none of it acknowledges the technical aspects, the physics of the system. So now you have... Uh, central planners given greater power AMO by by Mr Finkel a few years ago, desperately running around trying to keep it working and patching it all together. So you'll see in places like South Australia where you have periods where you have too much rooftop solar, there this a central market operator based out of where are they Coffs Harbour or Port Macquarie or something, um, trying to shut off rooftop solar systems in Adelaide. I mean it's it's just outrageous. Don't get me started about the mid-north coast where I live because we don't even have the proper uh, power coming through to us at all. We have to have generators to run our farm equipment because the quality of the energy is not high enough, which is pretty bad. That's if it doesn't go out every time there's a thunderstorm, which also happens to go on. Now, people don't always understand why this interference in the market is such a bad thing for energy. Now, before, you know, in the 90s and 80s and 70s, etc., we had these baseload power generators. They had a cost associated with them. They put out an, an even amount of energy, which you could predict, and people would pay for it. Now, energies that wanted to come in and compete with that market had to be value for money. They had to be a good product. So what happens and why is it so damaging if the taxpayer is now paying for things like wind and solar to come in? Why is that a problem? Like, why can't they just compete on their own merit? Why do they have to be subsidised by the taxpayer? Well, that, that segment you played by Craig Kelly, I mean, he's, he's not the most graceful speaker, but he's relatively accurate, I believe. Uh, here you've got intermittency being rewarded, uh, not penalised. Now, if you had that in any other system that you relied on, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't survive five minutes. So this is it's like I said before. It's purely these targets that are set up. They're completely arbitrary. Uh, any any science that they call it behind them uh, is is not worth the paper it's written on. So when we when we look at the effects on something like an electricity market, which values which should value reliability and the ability to meet for the supply to meet the demand. Uh, we find that there's periods where it can't and the demand is asked to turn down, which is what happens to your aluminium smelters and other big loads. And now pretty soon we're going to, we start paying people not to use electricity. And we're also going to be paying generators under this capacity investment scheme, not to generate electricity. Uh, and it's difficult to imagine uh, a more unproductive and inefficient, you know, electricity system. Well, I don't think people really understand that when you tell a smelter to turn off, you can't just stop molten metal, just turn it off for a while. I mean, it cools, it destroys all the equipment. These things require reliable, continuous energy sources to work. Now, we keep hearing about this new revolution in energy. There's going to be all these new types of energy that'll make all this work, and one of them is green hydrogen, and the US is spending an absolute fortune in researching green hydrogen. We've got similar projects here in Australia. 
What is it? Is it going to get off the ground or are we dealing in a sort of fantasy land here? Well, hydrogen, uh, whatever colour you call it, has been around for a long, long time. Uh, we all remember the famous the, the Zeppelin. Uh, it's commonly used as like a, a rocket fuel, I think, and there's also uh, cooling in, in generators, in rotating turbines. So this is, this is its long-term niche, and it's interesting that we've come a, a hundred or so years and it hasn't gone beyond that. Your, your hydrogen is a useful product, but it's quite expensive to make. Now, green hydrogen, uh, the approved green hydrogen only exists through the use of wind and solar or some other zero emissions generator source, which in Australia is going to be wind and solar. Now, it has to it has to put electric, electricity through a membrane uh, that's full of clean water, and one kilo of hydrogen destroys nine kilos of water. So this is this is a pretty good product in one of the driest regions in the world. And yeah, well, we keep hearing, that, we keep hearing <laughs> that nuclear is a bad idea because it uses water. I'm sorry, but nuclear doesn't do that to water, just to be clear. Yeah, so uh, Alan Finkel has quite often said that exporting hydrogen is like exporting sunshine. Uh, but that's that's a pretty poor stab at an analogy. A better analogy is it's exporting clean water. Uh, so that's that's really what it's doing. So Twiggy Forest is a, is a fan of green hydrogen, um, and if you look at the at the global price of iron ore and who buys it, you have to uh, understand that maybe he's looking to diversify uh, at some point. And hydrogen looks like a winner because it, all the governments seem to be backing it. Now the problem with hydrogen is it costs so much to make, and you can't move it. So there's no real market for green hydrogen, although the governments around the world, like you said, are desperately trying to work out how to move it and sell it, put it in pipes. Uh, but it's got it's got so many technical issues with the the thermodynamics of it that it's it's next to impossible to use. And that's why it's been a hundred or so years and it hasn't increased its market share beyond those niche applications. Yes, it's sort of like we've got this solution to our energy market sitting here and it's called nuclear and it just kind of sits there in the front of the screen and we're the most uranium rich country in the whole world and the most geologically stable country in the whole world and all of our population centres are along the coast making it really easy to put them around nuclear power plants and we're going, no, no, we can't have that solution. We will do anything except that solution. And so we're talking about things like green hydrogen for some unknown reason. Now, you and I are both speaking at the Wentworth Energy Forum in a couple of weeks. What message are you hoping to get through to the general public about energy? Like, What is your main concern right now? My, my main concern is that people don't understand how their electricity bill stacks up. Uh, and as, as banal as that sounds, I, I sincerely believe that there's only two questions you need to ask and then pursue the answers to those questions to understand the crux of the matter. So everyone's electricity bill at some stage is comprised of several components. You've got the cost of the electricity generation, uh, you've got the cost of the transmission, and you've got the cost of the retail uh, and green schemes on top. So you've got these, it stacks up. Uh, and you can find all these details in the uh, official reports that our my favourite bureaucrats put out. Now, when you, the two questions you need to ask are which of those components do wind and solar reduce and which of those components do wind and solar increase? Now, when you ask that of people, which I, I do often, I've been asking it for about a year now since I, 
I don't know, I guess I stumbled onto uh, my epiphany uh, and I'm pushing it with all my might. So go me. Um, I'm trying to get people to question the logic. So I'm an engineer. I'm addicted to facts. Logic is my drug, basically. So when I when I see stuff written in Renewer Comedy, the, uh, the infamous blog, you know, I get sort of start shaking and vomiting and get withdrawal symptoms. Uh, the problem with the ask, you just need to ask the question, which of those, which of those components is increased or reduced by wind and solar? Now, transmission lines, AMO are telling us we need 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines. Okay. Well, that's going to cost more. Uh, we're going to have a lot more according, according to the same plan, the integrated system plan, which everyone raves about, which is really, really problematic. And there's, there'll be some talk about that at our panel. Uh, they want a whole lot of consumer energy resources they talk about, which is your solar panels on the roofs. Uh, we're meant to be getting four times as many solar panels. We're talking about home batteries. We're getting a lot of them. Uh, we're talking about electric vehicles plugged in to support the grid. We're getting a lot of that. Uh, all these things, you know, no one talks about how much it's going to cost. Uh, it's not mentioned anywhere. And on top of that, um, so that's your, all those components have to go up because of this program, this path we're on. Now, when it gets down to wholesale cost, there's an argument there where renewables can reduce the price of wholesale electricity uh, some of the time. Now, the question comes down to do renewables lower the price of electricity enough during those short periods that it can overcome the other volatility and the high price, high prices that it causes as well? And I argue that it doesn't. And when you look at the data where the wholesale prices uh, go up and down and you can see all this, all these charts from the, from the websites and the data's right there, uh, you can do a comparison between the wholesale cost of electricity and things like the amount of renewables in the system. Uh, and there's no correlation except the price goes up. Uh, the price should be the opposite, right? The wholesale price should go down with more renewables. That's the theory. But when you, when you do another activity and you compare the price of electricity, wholesale electricity, with the price of gas, you get a very tight correlation. Uh, so I suggest that wind and solar, large amounts of it, actually push the prices up because it increases the volatility and therefore your retailers who buy electricity, volatile electricity, have to put their prices up as a result. Well, not to mention the whole replacement cost, which is coming on the horizon very shortly. Our solar farms and wind farms are just starting to reach that point where they need to be repowered. In other words, ripped out and put back in again. And I'm sure there's a third question in there, Ben, which is where's Albanese's energy price discount that we were promised that's been deleted off their little website? But that's unfortunately all we have time for today. Where can people find you? You can find me at the Baseload Podcast on all the all the best platforms, and uh, generally I'll be hanging out on X, X Twitter as well. You'll well, find me there, Benny Beats or Ben Beatty. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Alexandra. And that's all from us today. Remember, you can catch up with previous episodes of this show or check out other shows on ADH by heading over to the website or downloading the ADH TV app at the App Store. And that's all from us today. Catch you next week.